two. As a believer, it would be very difficult to leave here defeated after those simple truths this morning. And I don't want to take a simple matter or a simple subject and overcomplicate it uh, and make something that it isn't. But the simplicity of God's all-sufficiency is something that has um, shaped 2018 for me. And uh, as going through what to speak on this morning, it was evident for me of always try to preach uh, the opportunities I have here, what it is that God is teaching me and, and guiding me through. There was a project I had here in seminary, and the project was fairly simple, and it was to take a verse that was given, a short verse, probably 10 words or, or something like that, and to take 25 truths from this verse, not applications, not uh, translating it, reading this verse as if I had never read, read scripture before, as I didn't know what the story was, but taking a verse, uh, literally, and taking the simple truths out of it, like the fact that it has B-U-T, but at the beginning of it, means that it's coming right after something, and it means in transition of, so like something simple like that. And 25 of those in a small verse was difficult. And uh, I got it out, and I was happy I got this assignment completed. I don't know if my beard's throwing this thing off, sorry. But I finished the 25, I'm proud of myself, I turn it back in, and I, I give it to my professor, and he gives it back, and he says, all right, I want 25 more. And I'm like, can I just repeat those 25? And, you know, 25 new ones. And uh, get done with that, and it takes a long time, a lot of cups of coffee, and I finish it, I'm happy with it, turn it in, and he comes back, and uh, he's add, said, I'll add one more verse, but I want 50 more on top of that. And at this point, I'm thinking, this is just ridiculous. I'm writing stuff that I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just writing the most simplest things, you know. Uh, but it begins with the letter B. You know, I didn't put that, but that's what I wanted to do, just to show him, like, look, I've got, you know, I've, I've got as much blood out of this beat as I can. And what I didn't realize is that in seminary so far, in this class, uh, th this would be one of the greatest assignments that I've done to this point. And the reason being is I, I feel convicted that there are so many simple truths and characteristics about God and implications of those truths that we skip by them quickly every day. And shame on us if we feel that we are just so knowledgeable in the Bible and we've had such good preaching in our tenure here and we've had such good teaching in our tenure here and we're so good in the Bible and we, we don't need to hear about that simple truth anymore. May that never be said about Berean Bible Church. Tim is correct that sufficiency is not even a word that just it doesn't even help. And we say all sufficiency to maybe help with that, but still it is just our mere attempt to make a word describing God in everything that he supp supplies. When you study the topic of an all-sufficient God you discover that his all-sufficiency has been something we have seen from before the foundations of the earth and at the end of days, at the fall of man and the rising of a savior, at the hopelessness of sin, and at the joy of salvation. His sufficiency is just woven through the entire story of history and scripture. 
and even in our lives. Two different things about sufficiency that are simple for us. Uh, sin, right, is something we're all affected with, and sin is just saying that God is not sufficient. When we choose sin, we're saying, God, you are not sufficient for me. Look at the beginning of this whole process. Do I need to switch mics? That'll ADHD, I'll throw off thinking about that the whole time. Let me use this mic here. Great. All right, so we look at self as sin, right? And I know for me, uh, the enemies we all face in life, we all face tons of different enemies. And the biggest enemy in my life hasn't been uh, some separate power outside of myself. The biggest enemy in my life has been myself. And when I think about that, I even think about Satan. Look, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3 and 6, and uh, Paul is speaking to church in these directions of what it means to be an overseer and qualifications. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. What was that judgment? What was the conceit? I get a lot of verses I'm skipping through, so if I get past uh, and, and you're still trying to turn to it, I'm sorry, but uh, for time's sake, I'm going to keep moving. Ezekiel 28, 16, another description that through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you. Satan's sin himself was focusing on himself and what he could do. The lie that he could be all-powerful, that he was sufficient, that he could provide everything he needed. And he took that lie and he gave it to Adam and Eve, who nonetheless, just like us, without excuse, but he convinced them that he alone, God himself, was not sufficient. That this fruit, surely you won't die, right? He's just afraid that you'll be a God like he. And that was a lie. That Adam and Eve, just like us, believe that lie. That we can be sufficient in ourselves. It's kind of like a child, right? Anyone have a child that was little and decided to run away? And that child gets the idea that they're going to run away from home. And the idea sounds so good. They're like, man, why did I never think about this before? No mom, no dad, no vegetables. This is great. They run away from home. And like any good parent, you let them go. But you stand back and you watch, which is a beautiful picture of God's provision and grace. But from a distance, you follow them and you see them take a turn. And slowly, every turn, the look on their face begins to go from freedom to fear. Wait, how, what's for dinner? How do I go to sleep at night? That dog barking over there is going to eat me. That was the rational fear I had as a child when I ran away. And you begin to see this fear happens, and we begin to see, I'm not sufficient. I can't provide for myself. And mankind has been battling that lie since the beginning of time. That I am sufficient enough. Which is, in definition, sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it wasn't enough. When Abraham made his own path to God's promises, it wasn't enough. When Moses lashed out in anger... It wasn't enough. When David tried to fulfill the lusts of this world, it wasn't enough. When the Pharisees abused the word of God and tried to fulfill the laws, it wasn't enough. 
When Peter tried to hide in his own fear, it wasn't enough. And when Judas took 30 pieces of silver, it definitely was not enough. The greatest defense that I've seen in my life through this year, looking at God's sufficiency, is looking at God as all-sufficient and saying, that's more than enough. When temptation comes your way, you'll be surprised when sin comes at you and temptation comes your way and you look and you take time to actually think on the simple truth of God's sufficiency and say, I don't need that. God hasn't given it to me, therefore, I must not need it. Sin is saying that God is not sufficient. But if, if sin is saying that, the defense to that, salvation, salvation is simply saying and trusting in his sufficiency. When you accept that and you trust in God's grace, you're trusting that he has supplied all that you need in redemption. Look at this. this uh, I love reading through the Old Testament, uh, especially in this class that I'm taking now. And there's this beautiful poetry that is all through the Old Testament. But this story, I've got some verses I want to read through. If you turn to Genesis chapter 15. And this, this story with Abraham gives a beautiful picture of God's sufficiency. And one that I think I've read and heard a lot in my life. And when I began to study uh, the background of the story, it's just like a light bulb moment. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. I'm reading in the New International Version. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abram just making up his own excuses, his own sufficiency. God, you haven't supplied this, therefore I must need to because you're not all sufficient. The word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of earth, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And pay attention to these details in the sacrifice. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in half, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. But when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces of the sacrifice. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. 
This is the picture of God's sufficiency. And why is it important? This is a blood covenant that was being made between Abraham and God. And this was a covenant that would have taken place in those times between two parties. And what was happening here, you would cut the animals in half, put them on each side, which is rather gruesome and not something we would do today, but it was something custom then. And you would go through the middle of them, walking through the blood in between the two animals, or the halves of the animals. And what you're saying is, I promise and I swear on this covenant, and if I break this covenant, then what's happened to these animals, may it happen to me. That was the covenant. There weren't contracts much then, and there weren't things written up. They just did things through different uh, symbols, and this was a blood covenant. But it's very important in this blood covenant that two parties walk through the animals. Otherwise, it's just one person that's sticking to the covenant, and the other one has a way out. But Abraham was in a deep sleep. Abram didn't walk through. God and his presence through the torch went through alone. And just like salvation, it's God saying, I will supply the covenant on my own. As Hebrews says later, that I can swear to nothing greater. I am God, and so only I will keep the covenant. Only I will make the covenant. You sit back and you enjoy the greatness of my sufficiency. Salvation, trusting in his sufficiency. That we didn't have to walk through the blood. That we didn't have to make the covenant. But that God alone is the promise maker and God alone is the promise keeper. Our salvation is looking at God and knowing he has paid all of it. So these truths of sin and salvation and God's sufficiency gives us four implications that I'll quickly go through and we'll be done this morning. God's sufficiency is so great yet so simple. His sufficiency carries so many different implications to our everyday life. And this is to help us take this Sunday knowledge of all sufficiency to Monday living. The first one, God's sufficiency is not your credit card. If there's a word that has been more used and overused in the last 10 years in evangelicalism, it is the word prosperity. It's been hijacked, it's been torn apart, and when someone says prosperity, we don't even know what to believe. Is it good? Is it bad? What does that mean anymore? The number of pastors and so-called evangelists that spread the lies of the prosperity gospel to the flock are growing by the numbers daily. Not as much even here. It happens here quite often, but happening over and over again overseas uh, to people that don't have anything. So when they come uh, promising this magical Santa Claus of prayer and you receive what you get, then they jump all over it. It's a dangerous gospel. But if God is all-sufficient, right, we, we got to ask this question because it brings us to a crossroads. If God supplies all our needs and is so sufficient, then why do those babies that Ken Wicker saw in Africa die? Why do our loved ones get cancer and die? Why is there suffering? This all-sufficient God that you speak of, that's the, that's the question we get all the time, right, from the world, the problem of evil. If God is so sufficient, then why has he met my needs? Prosperity is not a dirty word. Just go to Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. 
How can we declare war against a word that God has declared as a promise? The issue is that we have redefined what prosperity is. The way that God intended prosperity and what it means for us to prosper is not what we define it as and not what we treat it as. We have defined prosperity as what I want, what's best for me, what I get and what I deserve. That's what we have defined prosperity as. And the issue is when you take that definition and you overlap it into scripture, then you do get that Santa Claus God. But if you look at how prosperity should be and the way that God intended it, then you get the perfect example of Jesus himself. He was the ultimate blessing and ultimate perfection. Yet he had no home, barely any money, traveled town to town, beaten, misused, and he gives us a great example, one that I use quite often with students. If you want to look about what it means, and uh, I don't want to go too much into suffering as Fred will uh, be talking to us about suffering next week, but Jesus, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows what's before us, that doesn't look like plans to prosper. When, when uh, Isaiah says in 50, Isaiah 53.10 that uh, it was pleasing to God, it was perfect to him, it was a good and perfect plan to crush him. How does that be? How is that prosper? How is that prosperity? Yet Jesus looks, knowing what's before him at the cross, and says, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. Because he knew that the prosperity was the salvation of mankind. What was to be prosperous was not this little moment that we see here on earth and we... We all here, every single one of you guys, I don't want to discredit anything that you're going through that's really difficult for you in your life, and it's been hard for you to even get up this morning because of what you're going through. I know that, and we're here to help counsel, pray with you over those things, but it is just a moment of eternity. And we look at prosperity and how God wants to prosper us, and we hold it to that one millisecond, and God's looking out of time at this whole picture of eternity. And when you begin to look at that, and you begin to look at eternity and through scripture and see that God not one time has ever left us alone. God has not one time ever been unfaithful. God has not one time ever stranded me in my despair. But God has always been there. God will always be there. Then you see that, yes, I am prosperous because I stand beside a prosperous God, not because I am prosperous. It's not about your 401k. It's not about your family, your education. It's about God and him and his prosperity, not ours. His sufficiency means that you don't have to worry. This one's easier to swallow than the last one, right? Not for me. Because anxiety and worry has been something that has defined a lot of my life. Forty million people in this country suffer from Anxiety or uh, any type of mental illness associated with anxiety. 40 million people. We live in America. What is there to worry about, right? Everything. As I talk with students this morning, and anytime I think about my own anxiety and I think about worry in my life, I am pretty busy at this season with family, full-time job, 
seminary, but I love all of them, truly do. But when I would get into these seasons of a lot to do, as all of us do, and we all get busy, and we're all busy in our own ways, I always defined anxiety and worry as the opposite of busyness. Like, hey, I'm really busy, I've got a lot on my plate, I've got a lot I'm doing, so I don't want to be stressful, I don't want to be uh, anxious, I don't want to worry, so I need to do less. And that just got me stuck in my apartment, not wanting to leave, go out in public, and to hide myself away from it, and to be scared of my anxiety, to hold it in. That's what that got me. And it was a mentor that came to me and said, busyness is not equal to anxiety. The opposite of anxiety is trust. Do you trust God in your busyness? Do you trust God in your anxiety and your worry? Now, anytime a student or an adult comes to me for counseling over anxiety, I don't just say, hey, you need to pray more. Um, I'll see you next week. It's foolish counsel. There are uh, medicinal and mental issues that take place that Doctors are provided to help us with a lot of those things, but prayer is a huge part. And to echo Robert Morgan a few weeks ago as he was talking through Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 7, possibly repeating what was already uh, written in Psalms, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Man, I, I teach all the time the importance in our intentional Bible study that you don't just read words on a page and close the book. Who wrote those words? What situation was happening? When was it written? What country was it from? All those things are important to the context of what we read. And realizing these two verses about anxiety and worry and trusting in the Lord come from Peter and from Paul. Two people who had ample excuse to have worry and anxiety define their life. Peter, after betraying Jesus, eldering a large church in uproar at times. We could go on and on. Paul, the former Christian killer, Yet these were the strongest two rocks of the early church, and they trusted in God's provision in opposition of worry. Every single one of us have worry and anxiety in different levels that we deal with, some more than others. But are you holding on to that? Because if we're going to sit here and say that God's all-sufficient, then is he not sufficient enough to handle that? Is he not big enough to take care of it? And you, well, I'll teach you, you don't understand. Like, this is, this is big. This is the worst moment of my life. You don't understand. I, or even, I've gotten myself in this situation. People say that all the time. I, I, I did this to myself. Well, so did Jonah. God took care of him. He was in a storm. God took care of it. The disciples just got on a boat, and they were in a storm, and God took care of it. It doesn't matter how you get there. God will provide for you in the storm. He is all-sufficient for all of your worries and all your anxiety. So if you come with worry, cast it upon him because his yoke is light and he can provide all that you need. His sufficiency means that you are free. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'd have made it under the old covenant. 
I'd have been killing a lot of animals. Because to keep up with the sufficiency of God and his blood is something that I could not fulfill on my own. And God gives us three great gifts. Remember this when you think about God's provision and God's sufficiency for your life. He has given you his son, he has given you his word, and he's given you his spirit. His son, his word, and his spirit. If you were to be stripped of everything else today, if you were to lose all of your family, all of your possessions, you would still have more than enough because of his son, his word, and his spirit. When I began to think on those three things this week, it just began to set me free, which is what put me to that title of that point because I said, I don't have to provide my own salvation that we get from his son. I don't have to provide my own wisdom and knowledge that I get from his word. And I don't have to flip a coin or look for a silver lining on where I need to go if I'm trusting in his spirit. God took that off my plate. And he's given those things to me in the gifts of his son, his word, and his spirit. We're free. I just need God. I don't need the blessing of a priest. I don't need a 40-day plan. I don't need the government to solve our problems. Lord knows they wouldn't. We just need him, and that's free. No magic potion, secret list. As the psalmist so beautifully puts it, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with the joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In despair, in hiding, in the worst moment, darkest, depressed situation in your life, to the greatest, most joyous, incredible moment of your life, God has given you enough. And the quicker that we realize and rest in that and find joy in that and find peace in that, the quicker you'll be able to cancel the worry, to cancel the things, the strife in your life, and trust on him. And the last one here is that we have something to do with this knowledge, right? We don't ever take knowledge and just keep it in, but our knowledge should turn to application. His sufficiency means that you have good news to share. Like every good gift that God gives us, he gives it in abundance. The manna, the rain, the famines, the fish and the loaves, the wine, on and on and on. He never just gave enough. He gave in abundance. As if to say, I have more than enough. You can't bankrupt me. My sufficiency is more than even your little mind could ever set loose on. My sufficiency is in abundance and more than enough. So why will we keep the incredible sufficiency to ourselves? This implication is more or less a charge 
It's a charge to find peace and trust in the sufficiency of God and then use it as a catalyst to share the good news of the gospel. We can look and see this in the Great Commission. We can look and see this all through the new church. But there's a simple truth that we read even through the Old Testament in Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Because we don't do like what I talked about earlier and we don't simply just stop and rest in his sufficiency. Even this, you know, this summer in student ministry, we're, our motto is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Just echoing that in our minds. But there's even something more simple before we even say that. We think, well, that's a simple statement. Well, how about the whole fact that God is great? Something to be greater, he must be great. If God is all-sufficient and we take time to rest in that, should that not motivate us to proclaim to our neighbors, to those around us, to our church, to our schools, to our workplaces, that we have tapped in to the man that owns cattle on a thousand hills? His abundance, as I said, cannot go bankrupt. Why do we keep this to ourselves? Let it never be said of us that if someone comes to a friend of yours and ask if you're a believer, that they say, I didn't know that. How can you have the all-sufficient power of God in your life? How can you have the all-consuming spirit and fire in your life and the knowledge and wisdom of the word and keep that to yourself? Yet we do it out of fear, out of how we'll be treated or looked at, or even the fact that we don't even think God's sufficient enough. Because even in that, we look and say, well, I can't tell them about this because I'm an introvert. I can't tell them about this. I don't really like to talk to people. And we've coddled that for a long time. If God is sufficient in the news, he's also sufficient in sharing the news. If God is sufficient in taking Adam and Mary's stunt there, then he'll take care of their needs, whatever they need to get there. For his prosperous will. Not ours. His sufficiency means we must. Not that we should share it or not that we can share it. But when we look at his sufficiency, we must share the good news of God being all sufficient in our lives. Let me close with this. His sufficiency is a choice. He does not force us his supply upon us. We can make the choice to believe that we can meet our own needs or we can trust in the one who will meet all of our needs. My in-laws are in town from all about, they all originate, and my grandparents are here from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and Paula and the Crawfords, this will be um, a difficult illustration for you as well. Um, but the Cavaliers were in the NBA Finals this year, and nobody wants to see a sweep ever. And this is the NBA Finals, if you don't know what I'm talking about sports, um, you know I was preaching today, so you should have knew it was coming. But game one is so important, and nobody's given the Cavaliers an opportunity to win this game. They've got LeBron James, who is maybe the best basketball player of all time. We won't get into that today. But they've got this tool in him. And if they can take game one, just maybe they've got a chance. Just maybe. And wouldn't you know it, 
They're down by one. Final seconds are coming down. And they get fouled. Make two free throws. They're in the lead and they win. They make one free throw. And they're tied. So still in a good situation. Second free throw goes up. Bounces off. And a guy named J.R. Smith gets this rebound. And he gets the rebound. And he runs all the way across the court. Misses the easy layup because he doesn't even look for it. He runs all the way on the other side of the court, thinking they have the lead, thinking he has what he needs to win the game. And guess what? It goes into overtime, and of course they lose. All the while, LeBron James is sitting there, shoot the ball, shoot the ball. He doesn't shoot the ball. And he goes past him, and all the while, LeBron James is saying, here, give me the ball. And I'm sitting, I'm standing in my living room, give LeBron James the ball, please. He will make the shot. He always does. Give him the ball. But J.R. Smith, his head wasn't in the game. He thought he had what he needed, but he didn't. How many times do we look in our life and it's just give God the ball? Give it to him. He can supply it. You don't have enough to win the game. You can't do it. You won't make it. But he is all sufficient. He shoots 100% every time. God is all sufficient. He will make the shot. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, all that prosperity we talked about earlier, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, you are all sufficient. That sentence alone should carry us out of here in victory. But as we meditate on the truth of your all-sufficiency, Father, we must trust in that sufficiency. Casting our cares to you, casting our anxiety to you, meaning that we're releasing control. Father, knowing that you are all sufficient and you can provide for all my needs. If my needs mean death, mean destruction, then so be it because I'm trusting that you are sufficient. God, I thank you for that truth. May we find freedom in it. May we release our worry, Father. May we use it properly and may we share it with those around us. It's in your son's name we pray.